We were in Romans 6 last week, and uh, I'm going to talk us kind of briefly through a little bit of 7, and we'll get into 8 today, but um, have you seen the, everybody's seen this, haven't you? The uh, bumper sticker that says, stuff happens. My tongue is in my cheek. Okay. Ron and I were talking about this this morning. I uh, got my little back spasm thing, Mike, empathizing with me. I, I'm empathizing with you certainly today. My little back thing went out again yesterday. And, it, you know, it would be nice if I told you I was trying to lift a 500-pound weight, but I was just trying to put on a pair of jeans. <laughs> you know, stuff happens, right? And, uh, and uh, as of, I mean, I was in bed most of the day yesterday just trying to get it to quit spasming. Um, so far this morning, I'm okay, but, but uh, you know, anyway. It, if I walk, you'll you'll watch. I'll look like Mr. Tudball walking out of here. If you if you remember that reference, but um, um, it, it, you know one of the things that we real that I realize when my back is hurting is that the the propensity for you to drop things is in direct proportion to how bad your back hurts. Have you noticed that? I've had to have my sweet lady pick up more stuff for me in the last twenty four hours because I drop more things when my back is hurting. Now what's it's because stuff happens, right? Uh, isn't it true that, um, um, that just things happen that are kind of unexplainable and, and lots of times they're not good, and yet <clears throat> I kind of want to go after this thought that some people will say, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. I'm not sure that's a faith statement, by the way. I'm, I'm really not. Uh, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, when a much-loved person dies, we often hear these sorts of things being said to the grieving. Well, God knows what he's doing. This is for the best. That's easy for you to say. It's hard for you to understand now, but God has a plan. I want to say, someday you'll understand why God did this. Variations on that are kind of flippant. And they basically are saying everything happens for a reason. But to make a statement like that puts us in this kind of untenable position of saying that our loving God is responsible for a horrible tragedy that's ripped hearts open. And I'm telling you, I don't buy that. This is not a Christian idea. It might work in Buddhism. It might work in some radical uh, forms of Islam. But it's not a biblical idea. The law of cause and effect proposes that there are reasons or causes for all things that happen. And at one level, this is true. But we don't live in an entirely mechanistic world. We don't live in a world where physics explains everything. Or chemistry, or biology. Even, Travis, sorry, biology doesn't explain everything. I know you're, you're like Mr. Biology, but it doesn't explain everything. Okay? Uh, and you and I can argue about that if you're ready. But, uh, all right? This is, he's going to... In about five years, he's going to be taking care of my gallbladder. So we're, we're trying to get him through medical school. And, okay. All right. <laughs> Look, he's saying, I don't want anything to do with your stinking gallbladder. <laughs> now, but isn't it true that, that some people will say uh, the worldview of science without God is the idea that there's no free will, that we live in a kind of a physics-oriented world. And all that's preordained because of physics. 
Now, in contrast, you also meet people who hold to the kind of cause and effect worldview, but also believe in God. So they're kind of trying to put those two things together. Uh, and they'll say that um, the only exceptions to some kind of physical process or mechanical process is God's deliberate manipulation of the forces of nature. That human tragedy is either the result of inevitable mechanical processes or the in intentional intervention of God. Tragedy must then be a product of either impersonal natural processes or the willful actions of a supernatural God. There's nothing kind of in between. Yet, this is not what people have in mind usually when they say everything happens for a reason. What they usually mean is everything happens for a good reason. All this seems to have a biblical veneer when you place it over the top of Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I'm going to go tooth and toenail after the verse and where it should be used and where it should not be used today. Okay, so stick with me. Some of this stuff will be a little hard. So pray that I don't, uh, I don't give up the good fight before we get to the end of it. How does this play out in real life? Especially in times of some kind of personal tragedy. Is there comfort to be found in the kind of everything happens for a reason thing. See, I, I believe that it's not a faith statement. So what do I do with Romans 8.28? Hopefully today we'll kind of deal with that a little bit. Now, I, we were in 6 last week, we were in 8 today. I just A lot of people want to take Romans 7 and, and create a big old theology around it. And I'm just going to give you a little bitty theology around it. But, but So you, you don't have to read much of it but, um, for right now. But take a look at chapter 7 just for a minute. I want us to read a couple of verses of it. Um, the idea here is, what you need, when you read chapter 7 in Romans, uh, what I think you need to do is it explains Paul's frustration but not his current frustration as a follower of Jesus. It explains his frustration as a, a person who formally tried to work out his faith under the law. And he was frustrated with that. Okay? Look at verse 24. Somebody read verse 24 from 7 for us. It'll kind of encapsulate the frustration. frustration is, Lord, somebody set me free. You know, in part of this he says, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I do. You know? That's his frustration. As his former frustration is trying to live under the law. And he asks a rhetorical question here. Who is going to set me free from this body of death? And he answers his own question beginning in chapter 8. Now remember, when this letter was written, it didn't have chapter divisions. It was just a letter written to a, to a church. Or to a group of churches. Look at chapter 8. And I want us to kind of use this as kind of a preamble. Here's what he says. Remember he has asked the question. Who's going to set me free from this life? And he answers his own question. Really toward the end of 7. But certainly in the beginning of 8. Now therefore. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Has set you free from the law of sin and death. All that that he described in 7, he's been set free from, he says. For what the law could not do, that's what he's frustrated with in chapter 7. What the law could not do, 
Weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He describes in 7 how futile his existence was, trying to walk in the flesh, and now he moves on and saying, but let me describe for you life in the Spirit. And he's going to cast that idea over top of this incredible issue of where is my faith when I'm going through a time of struggle. Now let's begin with this really important verse, Romans 8, 28, that many of us quote in times of trial. And somebody read 28, 29, and 30. Would you please out loud for us? This is the language in this, by the way, that the, from 28 to the end of the chapter is absolutely poetic and beautiful. And we're going to try to treat it as such. But it carries such amazing truth here. The truth is here that only God has the perspective to see things as they really are. Now, I want you to go back up the page a little bit to verse 18 because what he's asking and dealing with here from 28 out to the rest of the chapter is really in answer to the, to the problem posed in 18. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time. By the way, let me stop there. Think about what sufferings you're dealing with for the present time. You don't have to say them out loud. Just think about them. Okay? Remember I said stuff happens. Let's consider that, he says. The, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, he says, to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. The truth is that only God has a perspective to see how things really are and how they're really going to turn out. Paul is expressing here an unshakable kind of faith in God. But only God can see all things that work together for good. We got a desperate phone call last night and then a text to follow. I am hard-pressed to see how this works together for good. I hate it. hate what we're going through with Rhonda's mom. Just hate it. I hate what it's doing to Rhonda's dad. I understand the Romans 8.28 is true, but I can't apply it right now because I don't see it. I'm just going to be that brutally honest with you because I don't see it from God's perspective. I'm not going to see it from God's perspective probably till years from now. And maybe as the passage was being read, and certainly verse 18, maybe I won't understand it until I get there, not here. Remember the old gospel song that says you'll understand it better by and by? It's kind of true. I may not get it this side of heaven. I probably won't. I don't understand, Harry, why I, I, I followed through on your suggestion this week, called my uncle, and I don't understand why at 91, Skeet now is dealing with a, a much younger spouse 
who is struggling with leukemia. Now, he's taking care of her at 91. I, I don't get that. I don't think I'm supposed to get that. Can, can I just be honest with you? I don't think I'm supposed to get that. There's some stuff that you guys are going through or have gone through, Gages. I don't think we're supposed to understand it. I don't think it is appropriate for me to look at Tom and Donna Gage and say, you know, when Kelly left, you just got to know that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I'm sorry, I wouldn't do that to you. I love you too much. It hurts too badly. Oh, I think so. All you need to do is just grab somebody and hug them as tight as you can and tell them that you love them. I think you're right. Let me tell you something. Read the book of Job. When all this stuff started happening to Job, his comforters came around him. By the way, that word comforter is used tongue-in-cheek. His comforters came around him, and they did okay until they started talking. Right. <laughs> Prove me wrong. That's yes. You're never going to understand that, are you? And that doesn't heal. No. You know, I think you keep on saying no. that. No. And it's not. Isn't it interesting that... I wake up because that's how I plan. Yeah. I plan for grandkids. Oh, yeah. I never have, you know. Oh, that's so hard. Oh, I'm so sorry. Now, is this practical for us? Do you hear the stories we're telling? God's perspective is different from my perspective. The question really isn't, I'm going to say, why about my pain? The question is when, and the answer in verse 18 is, it'll be over one of these days. It'll be over over there, but it may not be over here. What I'm going to tell you let me tell you, just give you a good rule of thumb about when you can use Romans 8.28. You ready? For you, never for anyone else. Never. You might have the perspective of 20 years after the water's under the bridge and you can see, you know what, I still don't understand it, but I see how God did this and how God did this and how he allowed this and how he did this. And you may say, I can see some things working together for good. And good for you. But I'm going to tell you, you don't have permission biblically, and you certainly don't have permission from me to use this verse on someone else. Shame on you. <laughs> that was a kind shaming, okay? All right, look at verse 29. Really, really interesting passage, by the way, in context, because 29 is used for all kinds of things. And, uh, and, and I find it really interesting in the context that we're currently reading. Now, my question is here, all right, who is included in God's foreknowledge? So it says here, in the context of all this suffering, it's saying um, that um, it begins by saying in verse 29, those whom he foreknew. So here's the question then. Those whom he foreknew. Did he not foreknow everybody? Psalm 139, about verse 13. I was there when you were creating your mother's womb. Okay. Uh, have I told you I got another grandson coming? Have I told you that story? Okay. 
God is there. God is there. He knows all about that. He's knitting. That's what David says in Psalm 139. He's not going to drop a stitch. Okay, I get that. All right, so how, did, how many of us, us in this room did God foreknow? Every one of us. How many in this world did God foreknow throughout history? Every one of us. So he knew all. And the word predestined here that we kind of get hung up on is, is a word that means God has made us um, he's made us, he's made an earlier decision about our future. He's made a decision and, and kind of done some things about our future before you and I knew about them. Uh, um, it's not like God is making it up as he goes along. That's kind of what he's, Paul's dealing with here. God is not making up your life and your destiny as it goes along. He's got some plans for you from before when the world was made. Certainly from while you were in your mother's womb. Psalm 139, okay? So the idea here is, uh, it's the idea behind, if you remember reading the book, uh, what was it now, uh, 18 years ago or so, when Rick Warren writes uh, The Purpose Driven Life, it's the idea that you were made for a purpose. You were made on purpose for a purpose. That's kind of the idea of being predestined here. His plan for, here's the word that goes in your blank, his plan for humanity is deliberate. What is it? That's the second part of the verse that you don't hear a whole lot about. Okay, let me read it again. 8.29, all right? Here it says, from the New American Standard, it says, for those whom he foreknew, that's everybody, right? He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So what's the plan? The plan is that he created you with from before you were born. He created you designed to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Okay, Wayne, here's our verse. He designed you so that you would be recreated. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Say it with me, you ready? 2 Corinthians 5.17. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. That's his design for you. That's his plan for you. And for all of humanity. That's his deliberate plan. And it says, it's all kind of predicated on the fact that, that Christ is the firstborn among those, the idea of the firstborn. He's the first one who was resurrected. Now, I was doing a wedding before we got here. So it was, this is back in the Bell Isle days. This is 20 plus years ago. And I'm, I'm working with this sweet little couple who are not in church. But mom and dad of the groom is in church. And um, I, I just love meeting this couple. And we did a sweet wedding over a, over a long weekend. And I remember the dad coming to me who was really hung up. He's one of these guys that's really hung up on Romans 8, 29. He probably leaves out the rest of the whole Bible, but he's got his whole theology built around Romans 8, 29. And he said to me about his son, he said to me, he's, one of the, he's just not one of the elect. He was upset because his son was not in church because he was tending bar for a living. And he said to me, he's obviously just not one of the elect. I wanted to vomit. He'd already given, and this kid was 20-something years old. He'd given up on him. God hadn't, can I tell you that? 
God's design for Rob was to be conformed to the image of his son. Like his design was for me. And for Estella Milner. You got it? Now, look at verse 30. He's got a plan here, and Paul kind of unpacks it for us. It's kind of a three-fold plan. Let's read verse 30 again together. Um, yes, go ahead. I think this whole chapter really is about free will a lot, Charles. Yeah, I do. Now look at, he's going to use this word predestined again. Look at verse 30. These, those whom he predestined, remember he had a plan for. He also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the idea here is, let me fill in three blanks for you here. What have we been kind of predestined to do? God has called us. And given us an opportunity, there's your free will idea, Charles, an opportunity to respond. Second, based on that response, we're justified. Our response justifies us. Really not the response itself, but through faith in the Lord's sacrifice, the Lord Jesus' sacrifice, we are justified. We're made right before God and in resurrection. So one of these days, I'm going to be glorified. So called, justified, glorified, the idea, this long wait process that I'm in. When I get there, I'll no longer have to worry about picking up, bending over to pick up my socks and throwing my back out. Because my body will be justified and, and glorified and made perfect. My situation will too. And I'll see it with a completely different perspective. What I want to describe to you is that what we're going to talk about next is this season that we're in that Paul describes here as kind of a long wait for heaven. I live by faith, but one day I will live by sight. Now, let's go on. Somebody pick us up, if we will, and read 31 down through 36. Somebody do that. Okay, hang on right there. There are a series of six questions that Paul asked, and they're mostly rhetorical questions. In other words, as he asks the question, there's an answer implied in the question. All right? So there's going to be six of them. Let's kind of take them apart. Okay? The first one, it comes in verse 31, is kind of how should we respond to suffering? What should we do then, he says in, uh, in verse 31. Um, uh, in, in my translation, it says, what shall we say then to these things? Okay? All right. The idea here is, how should we respond to suffering? And the answer is implied in the second question. Look at the second question. It, it's also in verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? Now, here's the answer to the question that he poses. It's implied. All right? No one who matters. <laughs> no one who matters. If God's for us, nobody else really matters. Okay? 
Can you live with that kind of faith? I can. If God is for me, it doesn't matter who's against me. No one else really matters. No other situation really matters. I love this thought. Who can be against us? No one who matters. Look at verse 32. Here's, here's a, a third question, okay? We've already dealt with two questions. Here's a third question. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also bring with him freely, uh, give him, uh, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Sorry, I got kind of hung up in the, in the syntax there. All right, the third question. Does he not give all things to us freely is the question. There are two places we got to look to get this. And I want somebody to go, if you would please, to Matthew 6, uh, sorry, Matthew 26, 39. It's going to be really important for us to understand kind of the, question, the third question that's phrased here. Somebody get it? Matthew 26, 39. Karen, great. Hang on to it for just a minute. Okay, here we go. Does God not give all things to us freely? Will he refuse us? Good things. Now, I think we've got to put this in the context of asking that question of did God refuse Jesus anything? And that's a kind of an interesting question because I think Jesus is in certainly a different position here than we're in. Karen, read Matthew 26, 39. This is right in the middle. This is on Good Friday. This is the night before Jesus died. Actually, it's on Thursday night. In the garden, he's he's requesting something of Father God. What is Jesus asking? Spare me from the cross. Lord God, Father, can you spare me from the cross? Did God refuse him that request? Yes, he did. Why? Because you, because of you. Here's the idea here. He denied Jesus' request because, now back in Romans, of Romans 5.8. Look at Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for, toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did, God den why did God deny his son's request in Matthew 26? It was because of us. So here's the idea here. And the word that goes in your blank there on verse 32 is treasure. If God did not withhold his most priceless treasure, his son, then what else would he withhold from you? That's not my question. That's one I read this week, and I like it a lot. If God would not withhold his most priceless treasure, then why would he withhold anything else from you? Another one of those beautiful rhetorical questions from this chapter. Verse 33 is going to ask a fourth question. Who's going to bring charges against us? Here's the answer. The same as it was in question number two. The answer is no one that matters. No one's charges against you matter. The devil may come to before the Father even and say, he's guilty. And the Lord says, you know what? He's been forgiven. Leave him alone. No one's charges matter, the Bible says here. My question is here, oh, let's go on to verse 34. 
It goes on to say in verse 34, the fifth question, who is the one who condemns? And the answer to this is kind of implied in the question. The only one that's in a position to condemn won't. You know, we're, we're really good at quoting John 3.16, even on signs at baseball and football games, right? Some guy with a, with a you know, a red, white, and blue afro with a John 3.16. You know, I, I don't really get that deal. I don't know if that's supposed to be some kind of evangelism or what. But the problem is... Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? Do you know what the next verse says? God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The only one who is in a position to condemn any one of us won't. In fact, his position is a position of forgiveness. Isn't that wonderful? There's nobody in this world who's in a position to condemn you. The only one in all of the universe who's in a position to condemn you won't. No one's charges matter. The only one who has the right to judge is Jesus. And he won't. So he asks one more question. The sixth question is kind of hypothetical, but it's a real world question. It's who will separate us from God's love. And by the way, Paul does some of his most poetic work in the next few words between here and the end of the chapter. His final question you can put in your blank is real world. Who can separate us from God's love? His answer is sweeping. Um, it is kind of unparalleled in terms of its impact on us. And I've got to answer myself the question, what if this chapter ended at verse 34 and didn't go on in verse 35 and 36 and 37 and 38? Here's kind of how he he states it. I'm going to kind of pull it apart a little bit here. But look again, if you will, at verse uh, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he begins to answer some kind of hypothetical answers. What can separate us from Christ's love? Um, Can we be separated by difficult times and from distress that comes from them? No. Can our persecutors call Christ to withhold his love from us? No. What about lack of food for daily sustenance? No. How about a lack of clothing that's necessary for warmth and self-dignity? No. Can personal danger and threat of death undo Christ's love for us? No. The final image is one that's really important for us because he says, can the sword undo Christ's love for you. Why would that be important to them? Because they were in danger of facing the sword every day. By the way, 10 years hence from when when Paul wrote this, he faced the sword. History will tell us that 10 years after writing the book of Romans, a Roman sword took off his head. Do you know, do you think in that moment, he remembered the pledge he had made, the statement of faith he had made in Romans 8. You know what? Not even the sword can separate me from God's love. Wow. What if this section wasn't in the Bible? This is why it's here. Now let's look on. Somebody read 37, 38, and 39, and we'll finish this up.
Are you glad that's in your Bible? I am. I am so glad. In the Romans 8, 28 moments in my life, I'm glad 38 and 39 are there. You know? Now, Paul's answer on can God's, can God's love be separated from you is in using a word that is hard to translate into English from the Greek. It is a word that he uses in most of our modern Bibles. We are more than conquerors. You see that there? The word is really, if we, if we translated it um, uh, literally across from the, from the New Testament Greek, the word would be, we are hyper-victors. Hyper-victors. We're not just winners. We're hyper-winners. We are, um, yeah, I don't know what, uh, what the USA basketball team did against Johnny yesterday. I didn't see it. Did we win? I hope. Okay. You remember the original Dream Team were hyper-victors in every game. They didn't just win. They hid from their opponent. Okay. We are hyper-victors, the Bible says. And he gives a list here of things we're victorious in that is pretty exhaustive. I don't know what year it was. Joe, you might remember what year it was. Joe has his picture in a, in a Bible. Did y'all know that? Joe Jones has a picture in the Bible. In the Way Bible, so if you, mine is paperback. I don't know if they made any hardback. Did they? But that's, it was Ken Taylor's paraphrase of the Bible called the Living Bible. And this one was called The Way. And it had a bunch of, bunch of tree-hugging 1960s and 70s uh, hippies in it. And you were one of them. 1970? Okay. It was the Living Bible. Can I read to you how the Living Bible expresses verse 38 and 39? It is unparalleled. For I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from love. Death can't, and life can't. The angels won't. And all the powers of hell itself cannot keep God's love away. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, or where we are, high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God demonstrated by our Lord Jesus Christ when he died for us. Here's kind of the, the idea. He asks the question and then answers it. He's, he puts it in, in three or four or five sets here of possibilities. The first set is death and life. It addresses our mortality. Whether we're alive or dead, we're still bound to the love of Christ. An existence beyond this current life is assured us and that our loving God won't abandon us to the grave. The second set talks about angels and demons, spiritual realities. Neither good spiritual forces nor evil ones have any capability to sever our connection with Christ's love. Um, I, I, I just think this is wonderful. They're still able to cause us grief. The devil can still cause me grief, but he can't isolate me from Jesus and his love. A, a third set of things, possibilities of separation from, is, is a time perspective. There's nothing in the present time period. There's nothing in a future time period that can separate me from Christ's love. Nothing now, nothing tomorrow, nothing a year from now, nothing a thousand years from now can separate me from Christ's love. A fourth set, powers. Height, depth, 
spatial spectrum. There's nothing too high. Whether the highest mountain or the peak of heaven itself to cut us off from Christ, there's no place so low, whether the depths of the ocean or the underworld, that can cause us to lose our connection with Christ. And the fifth one, fifth kind of connection, it's just kind of a catch-all. Anything else in all creation, he says. Anything else, nothing else, any created thing. God has shown us that he has no inclination or intention to withhold his love from us, and there's nothing that that can keep him from it. This list is exhaustive, especially with uh, the end of verse 39 thrown in there. Nothing, not the powers of hell itself. Here's the good news. There are no exceptions. So, in my current struggle, in your current struggle, it might be tempting, and certainly Satan would like for you to start thinking, you know what, the Lord has loved you until now. He loved you in this, in this, in this. He loved you when you were doing some good thing. Uh, when I, when I um, realized that I tweaked my back yesterday, you know, there was a part of me, even theologically, that wants to say, Lord, what did I do that you're punishing me for? But the truth is, in your struggle, and in your struggle, and in your faith challenge, and in yours, and yours, and mine, there is no exception. He is with me. (laughs) And he's never going to leave me. Sometimes that's the best hope I can muster. And it's the best hope I need. Now, does God love you? No exception. Does God care for you? Is he present for you? Is his love active in your life even when stuff happens? Oh, yes. Don't you love the word of God? Doesn't it make me better to let its words and truths pour over my wounded soul? I hope it did to yours today. Now you know where you can use Romans 8.28. And you better know where you can't, okay? (laughs) All right, I'll see you next week.